0: Amen. Please join me as we pray, as we begin to open God's word. Father, we do acknowledge this morning your absolute holiness, your glory, your uniqueness. You are high and lifted up. You are so far above us, so unlike us in every way. And it causes us to tremble to think that we as sinful people, as proud people, as weak people, as those who struggle with the flesh and with sin and temptation, that, that you would invite us into your presence, that you would purify us with the blood of your Son. Father, we are amazed by that. We are grateful for that. And we pray that, as we sang this morning, that this morning... Um, that Jesus Christ, your son, would be lifted up, that we would see him as supreme, as exalted, that he would have the first place in our hearts, in our lives, and in this world. Lord, we desire to see Christ magnified and glorified. So as we study uh, the gospel of Luke this morning, give us a vision of Christ and his glory, and I pray that our hearts would be moved to honor him, to love him, to trust him, and obey him. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Please open up this morning to Luke chapter 6 once again. Many of you have probably heard of Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi was that Indian uh, lawyer, the guru. He has a lot of famous sayings and one saying that's attributed to him, I don't know if he actually said it, uh, but it's become quite famous is that he supposedly once said when talking with a Christian, he said, "I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians." Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And I think a lot of people today share that sentiment. They say, I I like Jesus, but I don't really like the followers of Jesus very much. And it's a catchy statement, and it's compelling, because let's be honest, who of us lives up to the standard that Jesus has set, right? But I don't think that statement is actually true. I don't think they really like Jesus. And here's what I mean by that the jesus that the world likes is a revisionist jesus it's a different version of jesus it's a jesus of their own making a jesus of their own imagination because the biblical jesus as we study the gospels is often quite offensive people may like the biblical jesus at first because who doesn't like healing and who doesn't like you know crowds being fed by the thousands who doesn't like Um, The poor and the needy being seen and and compassion being extended, we like that. But eventually, if you stick with Jesus long enough, if, if you're around him long enough, if you read the Gospels, eventually Jesus starts to challenge the status quo. Jesus begins to confront us in our sin. Jesus claims and demonstrates absolute authority and demands to be accepted as Lord, and that's when things become hostile. When Jesus does that, there's fewer and fewer people who are still saying, I really like Jesus. Luke tells us two stories here in Luke chapter 6 that both are scenes of conflict with Jesus, and they both center around the issue of keeping the Sabbath. And in both stories, it is revealed that Jesus claims authority, that Jesus expresses that authority, that he reveals himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, and that reality provokes both resentment and hostility among the religious leaders. They're no longer liking Jesus at this point. But this reality that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath... Is actually good news. It may provoke resentment in some and resistance in others, but for those who are seeking rest, for those who will humbly receive Him as Lord, as the Lord even of the Sabbath, this is good news. A little bit about the Sabbath to help us understand this passage. First century Israel, as many of you know, was under Roman occupation. Before that, it had been Greek occupation. This has been an occupied land for a number of years. And this nation Israel is fighting tooth and nail, not just for their freedom, that was out of reach. They were fighting to retain some sort of sense of national identity. Trying to remain unique and distinct and to stay Jewish and not become Hellenized or or sort of colonized by not just the imperial uh, law, but even by the culture of the Greeks and the Romans. And so because of that, there's two issues for them that became defining aspects of what it really meant to be Jewish, to be God's covenant people. And these two issues were circumcision and the Sabbath. Circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham. That's what made them unique in the covenant people. Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic covenant. The covenant that God made with them at Mount Sinai after the Exodus. So circumcision and the Sabbath, that's what it meant to be Jewish. To retain their national and religious identity. And the Sabbath is what both of these conflicts are about. The Sabbath actually has its roots back in the beginning of world history. It goes further back than the Ten Commandments. Genesis tells us that for six days, God did the work of creating the heavens and the earth. And then he rested on the seventh day, not because God was tired. God doesn't get tired. He did that to establish a precedent for people that were made in his image, to establish a pattern for the human race, that we work for six days, and that it is good for us, and it is necessary for us to rest And it's in light of that ancient pattern that the Israelites were told in the Ten Commandments as God gave them his law at Mount Sinai, they were told to set aside work on the seventh day, that it was to be a day of enjoying rest with their family, a day of worshiping their God who was the key to providing for all their needs. The fourth commandment in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is actually the longest of all of them. If you go back and read the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, It's remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And there's all these explanations of what that means. Sabbath keeping really becomes synonymous for Israel with loyalty to the covenant. It becomes synonymous with keeping God's law. To break the Sabbath was not just violating one law among many. To break the Sabbath was to disdain God who rested on the Sabbath. It was to disdain his word. He had written this with his finger in stone for them. It was to disdain God's covenant, to say, I don't care about this arrangement that a holy God made with us. When he came down to Mount Sinai and gave us his law, when that generation of Israelites promised, we will be your people, you will be our God, everything that you have said we will do. To violate the Sabbath was to throw all of that out the window. To keep the Sabbath, on the other hand, was to honor God, it was to obey his word, and it was to uphold his covenant. So these two conflicts over the Sabbath are a big deal. This is at the very heart of the Jewish religion. And so what Jesus does on the Sabbath and what he says about the Sabbath becomes a key turning point in the ongoing conflict between Jesus and and the Pharisees. There's two scenes here of conflict. What we learn in the first, in verses one through six, is that Jesus claims authority as the Lord of the Sabbath. That's the point. Jesus claims authority as the Lord of the Sabbath. It says in chapter six, verse one, "'On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, "'his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, "'rubbing them in their hands.'" But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? So very simply, what's going on here is Jesus and his disciples are hungry, and so they're grabbing a snack on the go. And they're not stealing. We shouldn't think that what they're doing is wrong because they're eating out of someone else's field. Doing this was lawful according to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 through 25, If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So the law said that they can pick by hand, but not with a tool, and they can fill their belly, but they can't fill a bag. That's the rule. So the law of God allows this practice. It was a way of God's provision for people who were far from home, and everyone did this. But what these men were doing, what the disciples of Jesus were doing on this day, is unlawful, not according to the law of God, but according to the Pharisees' traditions, because this was on a Sabbath. And the Pharisees understood what they, were to, what they were doing as reaping and threshing and preparing a meal. They're harvesting the grain, they're rubbing it together in their hands, they're getting rid of the chaff and they're feeding themselves and they felt like all of this was work. So the law of Moses simply instructed the Israelites not to work on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees had a whole list of things that according to their interpretation qualified as work. In fact, the Jewish Talmud had 24 chapters of Sabbath regulations, 24 chapters of their application of what it meant to keep the Sabbath. I'll just give you a few examples. According to their traditions, if your garment tore, you could sew one stitch, but not two. One was okay, but two stitches was work. You could only take 3,000 steps from your home, but if you went one step further, it's considered a journey. A tailor couldn't carry his needle. A scribe could not carry his pen. A student could not carry his books. That was considered work. If you threw something up in the air and caught it with the same hand, that was okay. But if you caught it with the other hand, that was work. You could use enough ink to write one letter of the alphabet. That's okay, but not two. That was work. They wouldn't even take a bath because they were afraid some water might spill onto the floor and accidentally wash it And that would be work. So we could go on and on, but you get the idea. It had become ridiculous. The Sabbath was given by God to be a blessing to his people, but it had become a burden. The other Gospels record Jesus' words in this scene where he says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But this good gift of God, this day that is set aside for rest and worship, it had become distorted by the Pharisees and turned into a burden. Ironically, It had become a lot of work to not do any work on the Sabbath. But Jesus didn't follow their rules. He didn't submit to their legalistic regulations for the Sabbath. So he and his disciples were happily grabbing a few handfuls of grain, rubbing it together to separate the wheat from the chaff, discarding the chaff, and filling their bellies. And the Pharisees want to know why. They're angry. So they ask him in verse 2, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? We need to understand this is more than just a, a simple question. It's not really an honest question. It's a veiled threat because Sabbath breaking was punishable by death. We see that in Exodus 31, 15, as a man is put to death for flagrantly violating the Sabbath regulations for not working. And I think the disciples, or the the Pharisees rather, they're interested in that. They're interested in condemning Jesus for a crime that is even punishable by death. Because they're angry that he is ignoring their authority and dismissing their traditions. He just threw out all of their regulations, all of their traditions, all of their teaching. He's upholding God's law, but he's breaking theirs. Look at how Jesus responds to this question. Verse three, Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat and also gave it to those with him? Jesus authoritatively rejects their legalistic rituals. He refuses to to their expectations and instead he starts exposing their faulty assumptions. Oh, you wanna talk about what's lawful? Okay, let's do that. Let's talk about what's lawful. And he argues against their understanding of the law with really a three-part argument. There's three sort of points to his argument here. And the first point is this. First, Jesus appeals to the authority of Scripture. He counters their question with a question. By appealing to the authority of Scripture, he says, have you not read? I like how the, the New American Standard translates it. Have you not even read? You can only imagine how insulting this would have been for the so-called experts in the law. He's saying, in effect, come on, guys, you should know better. I know you've read the Old Testament. And he draws everyone's attention, get this, to the authority of the written word. He is setting up their traditions against the authority of Scripture, Scripture must be the deciding factor in this debate between Jesus and the Pharisees. And Jesus recounts for them the story that's found in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David, the rightful king of Israel, he had been anointed by Samuel, was not yet on the throne. He's actually on the run for his life. He's being chased by King Saul, who is the current king and who's very jealous and angry and wants to kill David. So David and his band of followers fled to a little city called Nob, and they asked the priest there for something to eat. And all that was available for them is the holy bread of the presence, the bread that had been sat before the Lord in the tabernacle. That bread was to be set on the table of showbread all week, and it's replaced with fresh bread every Sabbath. Sabbath. And that bread, once it was removed, was allowed to be eaten, but it was only to be eaten by the priests. But in this unusual situation where God's anointed, the chosen king of Israel, the one that God had promised would reign, he was on the run with his followers. And so the priest gave the bread to David and to his men. So why does Jesus bring this up? Well, what he's doing here is arguing from the greater to the lesser. That's what he's doing to diffuse their condemnation of him. Jesus and his disciples were not breaking the Old Testament law. They weren't working. They're just grabbing a few handfuls of grain, satisfying their hunger, doing what's actually permitted by the law. What they were infringing on was the Pharisees' interpretation and application of the law. They were violating their traditions, yes. But he's arguing here from... The greater to the lesser because David and his men actually did break the ceremonial law. They ate something that was supposed to only be eaten by the priests. They were hungry in that circumstance. And the priest at the time, Ahimelech, he approved of it. And God did not respond with judgment. That passage in 1 Samuel does not condemn their actions. It's seen as approved and and allowed. And so Jesus interprets this story from the Old Testament to mean that the ceremonial law is not ultimate. And if the ceremonial law was not ultimate, then the Pharisees' tradition, which does not rise to the level of God's law, that certainly can't be ultimate either. Jesus rejects their legalistic ritual on the basis of the authority of Scripture But Jesus is doing more than simply citing this Old Testament story as a precedent. By alluding to David, he's actually making a statement about his own identity. So his first point of argument is he appeals to the authority of Scripture, but secondly, Jesus is also claiming the authority of a king. I mean, think about how this story would have landed on the Pharisees. They might have thought, well, yeah, David could get away with that. He's... He's David. He's the greatest king of Israel's history. He's our national hero, but who are you to think that you're some special exception to the rule? That's a great question, isn't it? Notice that Jesus is drawing a parallel between himself and between David. And in that sense, he's actually arguing from the lesser to the greater when it comes to the comparison between him and David. Just as David is Israel's rightful king, but unrecognized king, who's leading a band of followers. Jesus is Israel's rightful king, who's an unrecognized king, who's also leading his band of followers. David is the prototype. Jesus is Israel's ultimate king. He is David's descendant. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. We've seen this all throughout Luke's gospel. In chapter one, verse 27, we find that the child to be born will be the son of David That he's promised in chapter 1 verse 32 the throne of his father David. According to chapter 2 verse 11 the angel announces unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior. In chapter 18 verse 38 we will meet a blind beggar who cries out Jesus son of David have mercy on me. If Jesus is David's son if he is David's heir If he is God's anointed, the Messiah, then he has the authority to do such things on the Sabbath. So Jesus appeals to the authority of scripture, but he also claims the authority of a king by comparing himself to David. But he's not done. He's not done. It's one thing to draw a parallel between yourself and David, but it takes things to a whole new level when Jesus compares himself to God. Notice what he says in verse 5. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus appeals to the authority of Scripture. He claims the authority of a king, but he also claims the authority of God. Jesus calls himself here, once again, the Son of Man. This is his favorite title to refer to himself. And he takes this ancient title from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 refers to the one to come, one to whom is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. The Son of Man has this authority from God. It says that all the nations and languages will serve him, that his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So to claim to be the Son of Man is highly inflammatory because that's a claim to divine authority. It's a claim to glory, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing. As the Son of Man, Jesus is supreme over the Sabbath, and He is the one who determines how it should be observed, how it should be interpreted, how the law should be applied, because He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Think about it. Claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath is really claiming to be equal with God. Who is it who designed the Sabbath? It's God. Genesis. God worked for six days and rested on the seventh. Who is it who wrote with his own finger on tablets of stone the fourth commandment? Well, it's God. God did that. And Jesus claims absolute authority and lordship over the Sabbath. Jesus is claiming to be equal with God because Jesus, who is the son of man, is also the son of God and he is equal with God because he is God. He is God in human flesh and he is therefore rightfully the Lord of the Sabbath. It's his day. It's his day. He's the one who gets to determine how it should be interpreted and applied. So here in Luke chapter six, Jesus rejects the legalistic rituals of the Pharisees with the authority of scripture. He rejects their regulations with the authority of a king. And he announces his right to interpret and apply the Sabbath with the authority of God himself. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. This is his undeniable claim to absolute authority. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He claims that authority. Then Luke takes us to another scene where Jesus not only claims authority as the Lord of the Sabbath, but he also demonstrates that authority. It's one thing to talk, it's another thing to act, and Jesus demonstrates this authority in verses uh, 6 through 11. It says, on another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Really, this story in verses 6 through 11, though it involves healing, it's actually not about healing. It's really about this escalating conflict with the Pharisees. They're there in the synagogue not to learn, not to listen so that they might understand the Scripture. They're there watching Jesus with one purpose in mind they want to accuse Him, they want to condemn Him. And according to their tradition, again, not according to Scripture, but according to the Pharisees' tradition, it was not permissible. To treat someone on the Sabbath, medical treatment, according to them, would only be allowed in life-threatening situations. So if someone was bleeding to death, you could obviously try to stop the bleeding. That was okay. But if you just had a broken bone, you'd have to wait till the next day in order to set that bone. And and so with this man being present with a, a withered hand, this right hand that's withered, that's a serious condition most people are right handed. To have your dominant hand completely useless, some of us have had that maybe on a temporary basis. It's frustrating, it's difficult. But that's not life threatening. This could have waited till the next day. But the Pharisees are very aware of Jesus' attitude towards their interpretation of the Sabbath. And they're anticipating that Jesus just might heal this man. And if he did, they might have the evidence that they needed. If they could convict him of breaking the Sabbath, this would be public. There would be witnesses present. It wasn't out in some random field. It was in the synagogue, a holy place. If they could catch him breaking the Sabbath here, they would be able to invalidate him as a teacher and provide grounds for his arrest and his prosecution and his punishment. And Jesus knows this, doesn't he? He's very aware of their game. In fact, verse 8 says, but he knew their thoughts. And rather than wait for them to pounce, Jesus sees what's going on and he, desc- he decides to push the buttons. He decides to actually spring their trap. And he calls this man to come forward. Verse 8 says, But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Jesus is in total control here. He's intentionally setting the stage for another conflict. And this time, the conversation will start with Jesus asking the questions. He's not going to wait until they ask him something. And look at this question. Look at the first part of this question that he asks verse 9. He says, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? He says, I know what you're thinking. Let's talk about the law. Let's talk about what's lawful. Isn't healing good? Isn't the demonstration of mercy something that would honor God, something that's in keeping with his will? Didn't God desire that more than hollow and hypocritical law-keeping? You see, these men should have known what God said through Isaiah. And Isaiah, it says this about empty rituals. Isaiah chapter one, verse 13. God says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. The very evident point of that that passage in Isaiah is that God does not value form over substance. That's not what pleases him. Heartless rituals do not please God. But heartless ritual is exactly what the Pharisees were defending and promoting. And the point that Jesus is making here is, listen, who's really the one who's pleasing God right now? You or me? Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? But look at the second half of this question, because this really exposes their hearts. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Note this, to save life or to destroy it? There's an irony here. The irony is that Jesus is wanting to heal, to save this man's life in the sense of rescuing him from his paralysis and restoring him But what the Pharisees want to do is kill. That's why they're there paying attention. Now, which one is more pleasing to God? Which one is in keeping with the law? Well, obviously, the Pharisees could not answer him. There's a long pause here. Jesus asks this question. Then verse 10 says, he looked around at them, but they don't answer. Jesus was looking around at them, verse 10, and what did he see? Jesus saw their lack of compassion. They cared more about their bruised egos than this man's withered hand. Jesus saw their self-righteous pride. They thought they were better than Jesus because of their strict Sabbath observance. He saw their corrupted sense of morality. They were condemning his merciful actions and justifying their own cruel intentions. He saw their unbelief that they refuse to recognize him as the Lord of the Sabbath. They refuse to believe that he is the Son of Man. And so although they say nothing, Jesus sees everything. And what he does next is a direct repudiation of their hard hearts, their unbelief, and their twisted interpretation of the law. After looking around at them all, long pause, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. Jesus heals this man because he not only claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath, he is demonstrating his authority and his power as the Son of Man by healing this man in the synagogue. And what's the result of all of this? Verse 11 says, But they were filled with fury. You might have thought they would believe. Wow, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He has this power and this authority. He must be the Son of Man. But instead of believing, it says, they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Matthew's gospel says they wanted to kill him. Mark's gospel says they started conspiring with the Herodians, with people loyal to to Herod and the Roman Empire who had embraced Greek culture. They're willing to collaborate with those that they would have considered enemies if they can just put a stop to Jesus. When it says they were filled with fury, this is a vivid term. It's almost an irrational anger. They are seeing red. This incident for them was the final straw. They had seen him prior to this as a blasphemer because he claimed to have the authority to forgive sin. They had seen him as unclean because he ate with sinners and tax collectors. They had seen Jesus as some sort of spiritually insincere glutton because he and his disciples didn't fast. And now they saw him as guilty of breaking the Sabbath. And he has publicly defied them in the process. So they want to kill him. And all of this will start in motion, a number of events that would eventually lead to the cross. Because Jesus has claimed authority as the Lord of the Sabbath. And he has demonstrated that authority as the Lord of the Sabbath by healing this man in the synagogue. So what's our response to all of this? Well, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. I think you've gotten that point just from reading the text. But listen, he must be received as such. There is a response in this text, a wrong response by the Pharisees. They do not believe, they do not submit They do not humble themselves before Jesus. What will our response be? Jesus has all this authority as the Son of Man, and he must be received as such. The Pharisees would not. Their unbelief was evident in their pride, their hard hearts, their resentment. But what about the other minor characters in this story? While this story does primarily focus on this interplay between Jesus and the Pharisees, look at what happens to the lesser characters. What is their experience? Well, it's the disciples in verses 1 through 5. They're following Jesus, they're responding to his authority at some level, listening to his teaching, learning from him. And what happens for them is that their hunger is satisfied. What about the man with the withered hand? He's in the synagogue. He's listening to Jesus. And when Jesus gives him instruction, when he commands him to come near and stand up in front of everyone, he obeys. When Jesus commands him to stretch out his hand, I mean, if you had a withered, deformed hand, you'd probably, most of the time, keep that hidden. He commands him to stretch it out in front of everyone. And it's healed this man experiences restoration of his health. Listen, that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath is good news for needy people. It's good news for those who are hungry. It's good news for those who need to be restored and renewed in their strength. You see, Jesus is not only teaching about the good news, he is the good news. Embracing Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath means we embrace him as our Sabbath, that we find our rest in him. Embracing Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath will require a few things. It will require of us that we reject man-made standards, traditions, the wisdom of men, things that are extra and not demonstrated clearly by the truth of Scripture. If we would embrace the Lordship of Christ, it means we have to reject man-made standards. It will also require that we renounce man-centered efforts that we lay aside our working and our striving and our straining to meet our own spiritual needs. Those who would experience the sabbath rest that Jesus comes to give must submit to his authority, his authority and believe in his message. The disciples were following Jesus, submitting to his authority, and they had their hunger filled. The man with the withered hand submitted to his call to come and stand and stretched out his hand. He had the strength of that hand restored. Listen, it's in submission to the authority of Christ that you and I will come to experience a rest that only Jesus can provide. It's in Christ that the Sabbath itself is actually fulfilled. As Jesus gives us rest, he becomes our rest. This is what the Sabbath was ultimately meant to teach us. In fact, Hebrews chapter four, verse nine says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. There is a rest, a peace, a safety that God offers to us. How is it that we strive to enter that rest? Well, in the same chapter, Hebrews chapter 4, it tells us. It says, we who have believed enter that rest. We receive the authority and the lordship of Christ by faith. We trust him. We submit to him. We believe in his promises. We believe in his gospel. And it is as we believe in Christ and submit to him that we receive and we enter into this true rest. Some of you are tired this morning. And I'm not saying that because your eyes are drooping or you're hitting the coffee again. It is not physically tired. Some of you feel worn out at a much deeper level. It's an emotional fatigue. It's a spiritual exhaustion. I want to share good news with you today. That God has provided rest, true rest for us in Christ. And he calls us today to lay aside our working, to lay aside our striving, to lay aside our trying and our straining, thinking that we can be accepted by God if we can just jump through all the hoops, if we can keep all the rules, if we can do enough good works. Listen, today, Christ calls you to reject those man-made standards, to renounce those man-centered efforts, and to simply come to Christ and rest in his finished work. The work that matters is not your work. The work that matters, that, that, that acquires and, and gives us access to eternal rest, is not our work. It is the finished work of Christ. Believe today that rest is found in him. Trust that he did the work for you. That he lived a perfect life that you couldn't live. That he died a brutal death on the cross in your place. And that he rose again three days later to give you a victory that you could have never won. And the only work that remains for us to do is to receive him. To cling to him by faith and to believe that his work is enough to save us. It's not about keeping the law. It's not about measuring up. It's about receiving Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who rules over the Sabbath, and the one who is able to extend to us that perfect rest. Listen, religious efforts, like that of the Pharisees, will not give you entrance into that rest. Only Christ can carry you there true rest is found in him, the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we see very clearly in your word that you have claimed and demonstrated absolute authority as the Lord of the Sabbath. And we thank you that you show us that you see our needs. You recognize our hunger and our weakness. You you recognize with mercy and compassion what it is that That we lack, and you're eager to provide for that. And your law is not meant to be something that crushes and restricts. Your law is something that is meant to point us to you, to show us our need for salvation. And Lord Jesus, today we gladly celebrate that you are a great Savior who provides for us a perfect and eternal rest. I pray for those today who may feel exhausted and discouraged in a spiritual sense. I pray that they would not look to their own efforts or look to the law as the answer. I pray that they would come to you and rest in you and that in submitting to your authority and your lordship, they would find obedience to become a joy, that they would experience what you said in the Gospel of Matthew, that we come to you as we are weary, as we are heavy laden, and we find rest for our souls. As we take your burden, your yoke upon us, we find that it's easy and it's light. That can be difficult for us to understand. But I pray, God, that today you would take us into a deeper experience of your rest, a deeper understanding of what it means to wear a yoke that's actually light. Help us to recognize that the work that matters is work that you've already done. May we receive your grace and that rest with a faith that sees Jesus for all that he is and receives him for all that he is. We love you and thank you for this great gift. In Jesus' name, amen.